0: At a time when our conversations are as polarized as they've ever been, sound ideas and reasonable perspectives get lost in the shuffle. Well, we can't afford to lose our voice. I'm Chicago Urban League president and CEO Sherry Runner, and if you aren't at the table, you're on the menu. Welcome to our conversations on culture, race, and equity. It's time you had a seat at the table, pull up a chair. Your host, Domati Pongo.
1: Welcome to Episode 8, our final episode of Culture, Race, and Equity. The format for Episode 8 was a youth violence panel at the Chicago Urban League headquarters where we spoke with different advocates and community stakeholders who work with youth on a day-to-day basis. Urban League President and CEO Sherry Runner gave opening remarks.
0: Chicago has become the epicenter for the conversation on what is going on in our urban communities. So um, we are really uh, thoughtful about this tonight um, and as we are uh, generally. Most importantly because we think it's most important to think about this as not um, just something that's happening or something that's endemic to African American communities but most importantly something that's a symptom of what's happening um, to African Americans in the city of Chicago, the state of Illinois, and the United States of America. So um, I am very, very excited about our panel tonight. Um, I'm very, very grateful to Domity Pongo for putting this podcast series together and Sabrina Gregg uh, on our staff. Uh, this has been uh, very important in terms of outreach and getting conversation going. And it's important that we continue to do it. And uh, I have to tell you that it's been seen In more than just Chicago. Um, So I I just want to make sure that you understand that this is very important to us. Um, And so I will get off the stage of this this event, and I just want to welcome our panelists and thank them in advance um, for engaging in this discussion.
1: My co-host for the panel was Black Lives Matter activist Kofi Ademola. This is a lot to unpack. Um, A lot of times when people are talking
2: about violence, and specifically in Chicago, we look at gun violence. We look at laws and we look at just kind of the reactions that the people have and it, it gets sensationalized. Uh, we had a conversation around how black folks for a long time have been sort of labeled as criminals as if we are inherently pathological. Uh, it's a brother named Khalil Muhammad wrote a book called Condemnation of Blackness. If you get a chance, check it out. But he literally talks about Chicago over a 100-year period where black people have uh, dealt with this label and this, this sort of stigma. And it's always blamed the victim, essentially, and never looked at our conditions, never looked at our environment. And, um, for a lot of us, uh, Tammy, as you know, when you talk to people, uh, a lot of people aren't aware of what's happening in the UK. And you know this is news to folks, You know that this stuff is happening over there too, right? Yeah. So can you kind of frame for us um, just kind of what are some of the conditions of why do you think young people are engaged in certain um, instances of violence and kind of what are some of the, the lead ups to that?
1: Timmy Mwale is the founder of an organization called Forefront, a violence intervention organization in the UK. She came to Chicago to do research on how crime in America compared to crime overseas.
3: In the UK, obviously we don't, I'll start from the weapons, like from the perspective of the weapons, we have quite strict gun laws. So we don't have a gun culture in the same way that you guys have in this country that does changed the form of violence quite drastically. We still have firearms, we still um, have shootings, and people are still killed by guns, but that's the minority. So the majority of our youth violence is um, stabbings. So we have a lot of young people that arm themselves with knives, big knives, swords sometimes, machetes. um, They'll put them down their trousers, they'll walk around, it's a staple, they will leave their house every day with a knife. And I think for a lot of people even in our society, adults in particular, but people that are not from the environment predominantly cannot understand what would drive um, a 13, 14-year-old to need to arm themselves every time they leave the house. The reality is they've never felt um, threatened, and so they don't know what it's like to feel like your life is under threat every time you leave the house. And for many of the young people I work with, that's the reality. So for them, the feeling of fear and anxiety is something that's not often spoken about, but ultimately that is what drives them to to act in this way, that violence could come from anywhere, any direction, from any person, um, and that every day this could be their reality. Like some of the young people I've met since I've been here, not many young people I work with expect to live to 18 or into adulthood. So that affects how they perceive themselves, their sense of dreams and aspirations. If you're not gonna live into adulthood, why would you have a plan for for your life? So I think that's something that's quite similar. In terms of what drives it, we still have a violent culture um we have a violent society whether that's through our media through our films or through just our interactions so many young people grow up in households with domestic violence they witness violence in the home they witness violence in the community and then that is then going to shape the way that they interpret conflict how they feel they should act in certain situations but that is definitely um I think the other thing in terms of culture, what is different in the UK is a lot less segregated, so even our lower class poor people, we live together, white, black, Asian and other ethnic minorities, we will live in the same hoods. That affects it as well because it means it's not just young black people that are involved in violence, but it's still extremely disproportionate. And just to briefly talk about our criminal justice system, it's not as harsh in terms of the level of sentencing and things like that. However, it's a lot more disproportionate and that's something that rarely is understood um, from conversations I've had here. So black people in the UK make up about 3% of the population compared to 13% here. But if I was just to take our youth prison population, so 11 to 18 year olds, um, young black boys make up 46% Mm. of the youth justice system. So that was, actually a statistic from two years ago if you can now imagine that's shaping the adult prison population so within the next five years we'll see how that translates and it's also very dependent on what cities like I said I'm from London we've got you know strong black community in different communities in Manchester Birmingham and other major cities as well that shapes the way that the violence plays out in those cities but again like here there's a strong narrative that there's black on black crime it's because of young black people are pathological, inherently violent. Those similarities we see in the narrative, the way that it's shaped, not about um, deprivation and just the conditions that people are living in. So in terms of the root causes of violence, I think it's very similar. So here.
1: What I love about this panel and the way we're able to provide context is because you know we see that it doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, 3% of the population, 46% of the prison population. Charles, you've done a lot of work in this space. Can you kind of contextualize what mass incarceration looks like in the city of Chicago? I'm sure many of you know, but just to hear you break it down once again, um, what the culture of incarceration is like in this country so we can more vividly see the parallels between what's happening here, what's happening in the U.K., so we know it's not accidental. I know in Chicago, um, black men make
4: up, you know, most of the population in um, the county jail and also in the state prison facilities.
1: Charles Preston is an activist and a writer for the Chicago Defender. And, and, and
4: it's been like that <laughs> forever, mm-hmm. uh, as, as, far, as far as I remember or can recall. Um, me personally working with youth, um, they do live a, a very unique lived experience than most. Um, but it's constantly like a mainstream culture or mainstream voices talking to these people who live a unique experience and they can't really speak to so like what they are going through for example um we have one boy in our boys program that has a hit on his head um and people don't know how to deal with that mm-hmm. <laughs> like like what do you tell do you tell him not to arm himself right. Right. to not right. protect his life right. uh, do you what, where do you send him <laughs> mm-hmm. where like what what's the answer to dealing with youth that that are walking around with basically hits on their heads and um the, this kind of um, culture is, 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 ha- hasn't been talked about. so we have a breakdown in like street organizations um, where folks who organize on behalf of the community um, and against like police brutality back years ago. So we're talking about what they would call gangs. Um, street organizations that also like work alongside like a lot of historic civil rights activists. Like a lot of people didn't know like Martin Luther King worked hand in hand with like the vice lords when he was like organizing in North Lawndale. Mm-hmm. And so what we see is like these community groups have often been criminalized um, and arrested and like flooded into like the prison facilities. You see a breakdown in that 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 culture. And so that culture of like black men organizing and and black men out here. Um, trying to provide needs for the community, they took the leaders out and they took a uh, structure, and so now we have like a lot of young people who are basically like almost like renegades in a sense, in which um, they are defending themselves and their friends, especially if they come, up, especially if they have broken homes and a family. Yeah, you know, that cycle and that and that relationship with violence. Like I can't tell you not to defend yourself. Yeah. When you have people coming after you. But yeah. at the same time, your harm, like you arming yourself and you carrying out that action, is harming others it and becomes, causing
1: funerals. So, yeah, no, it's true. It becomes visceral, and panelists too. You guys can jump in at any point. You know, as be as rude as I'm being. Uh, I'm so sorry to <laughs> yeah, cut yeah. you off. But you you sparked a thought um, about how visceral it can be. Like I lost a childhood friend about three weeks ago now. Um, one of my best friends went to high school with him, seventh grade. Um, but he got killed, and at the funeral. Um, I spoke and walking up to the funeral, walking up to the podium. I had in my mind trying to figure out the best way to say, tell my friends that were there that we have to make a change in how we move,
5: mm.
1: without judging them or admonishing them. But then when I stood up there, you know, and they know me like I, I, I've changed. I've never. I'm not saying I was the, a hitter back in the day, but I wasn't. I wasn't wearing. Lasers with elbow patches, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I was trying to figure out how to tell them that a change has to happen. But then, as I looked in their faces, I see the concern because they know if he got killed, then they have to armor up even more to keep these things from happen to, happening to them. And so, how can you even talk about? And then, then you know, there was a friend that was there, and I want to swing this, this to uh, Dr. Cartman. There was a friend that was there who was in the car with him when he was murdered, right? So. Who is he talking to about his trauma, what he's going through? Aside from all the drugs that he's taking, aside from all the lean that he's sipping. And and, and to be honest, when I got up there, I talked about my relationship with him, but I couldn't find the words to tell them not to arm themselves. I didn't know how to tell, I was hoping that my presence would be a representation of what things could look like if they would move a little differently. But I didn't know how to articulate that. But I want to ask Dr. Cartman, how do we have conversations with people affected by this trauma around how to deal, deal with it
5: mm-hmm.
1: health, in a healthy way, and then how to square away that, that need, that anger, that mm-hmm. sense of uh, the, the need for vengeance. Yeah. How do we even approach those conversations? I mean, I think that the same
5: fallacy of thinking that the city does where they see a problem like violence and want to solve it by adding more money to more violent institutions
1: Dr. Obari Cartman is a clinical and community psychologist.
5: Does now, it just does not work, and so the instinct to pro- try to protect your children by getting more guns um, is a limited, like perspective of how to really keep the community safe. And so I have this image of you know boys here in Chicago with guns, or in the UK with machetes, and like the the issue, whatever the weapon is, I think that one of the things that they need to do differently, that we need to do differently, is think about. Um, it, let's say they're going to defend themselves. They got weapons on them. There's something that happens in the instant where you got a gun, you got a machete, you got some type of weapon, even if it's your fist, and you're, you're faced with the decision to make to defend your honor, to protect yourself, to respond impulsively to somebody saying something wrong to you. And I think there's a skill set that we can start to teach young people in be, being able to um, just calm down for a moment. Like sometimes it's just that first quick moment if you just take a, take a breath. And just just, survey the situation, think about the consequences of your actions, think about how you lose power, think about how you set yourself up, think about how the bystanders around are impacted by this. So like some of that, like the mental health part of this is just a skill that we got to teach five-year-olds in order to help them maintain like their, like that's self-mastery for real. Mm. To, not, to not be a puppet to a community where anybody can say anything to you, step on your shoe, and now you in a in a fist fight. Now you're in a gunfight, right? Mm. Um, yeah. But, like, the beginning of that is, is how do you teach young people to just be aware of themselves, to be able to find where anger is about to bubble up, to be able to be aware of your surroundings, to be able to, like, develop these, these social skills, emotional skills, so that your only option isn't gunplay, right? So right. You, you, you have a toolkit to pull from, um, I ain't never been in no fight, fight. I've never not been in a fight. I mean, I've never been in situations that could have been fights, but I've talked myself out of them. My mouth was a was a skill set, right? My my wit, my cleverness. You know what I'm saying? My my ability to stay calm, to be able to to survey the people. And when they said like, so if you only got one skill set, which is not even been able to shoot clear enough, you got you know little girls because you can't. You're not even in a gun range mm-hmm. to be able to use that skill set directly. Um, targeted in a targeted way, like we got to develop different skill sets, and they can't just be violence. Um, and they sometimes need to be violence, but part of the, the the lesson is discernment. When is it? Like when do I need? How do I apply? When do I, what's a good reason to fight? Who? What's a good What's a good target to aim my gun at? Right. These are all political education lessons. These are all mm-hmm. emotional, you know, skill sets. These are all different things that. Young people have no access to because the narrative impacts them in a way that they only see a very rigid sense of what it means to protect myself, what it means to be a man, what it means to be black. And we got to be able to expand that for them in terms of vision, but also in terms of skills.
6: Yeah, I agree. Uh, I want to apologize
1: to everybody for my tardiness. Tree is an activist who has dealt with gun violence on a first-hand basis. In fact, he was shot himself. He's currently in a wheelchair. He speaks about his experience.
6: My name is Tree. I'm a uh, activist, and I'm a counselor and mentor at Austin High School on the west side. I, myself, was a victim of violence. I was shot in 2012, and uh, the first year, I was like, it was a, it was a weird experience for me because I had never been shot before. So, like, the feeling of somebody being able to take my life whenever they want it, and me just feeling helpless made me get really angry and just like, I don't know, I just really wanted blood, though. Like, I really wanted some sort of justice for what had happened to me. So, as I sat there, like, the first week in the hospital, I had to lay on my back for a week straight because they couldn't really lift me up or anything. So, it's like, I felt like I was in a casket because everybody was coming, like, leaning over my bed and I was just real mad and it's like my I had friends coming like we going to kill them niggas we we finna go you know cuz they knew who it was it was people that they were enemy they, it was it was they enemies like I had accumulated enemies by being friends with people that had enemies yeah. so I myself particularly wasn't doing anything but how the streets go like if you with them you with them we don't care we saw you over there you going we can't get them we going to get to you so I wanted revenge at first. Like I wanted like blood. I wanted. It was real dark. Like I didn't really understand. Cause before that, before that happened to me, I would like when I hear about like all my friends that I lost, I lost after I got in the wheelchair. So before that, I just would hear about other people getting killed. And I would just think, like, man, why would somebody go kill somebody? And then like some people was like, oh, this, he got shot. He went and killed the dude that shot him. Well, he got shot at. It. I still didn't really understand, like, still, like, what would drive a person to go try to harm somebody just because they got hurt until it happened to me. Like, it's a real dark thing that floats over you and, like, whispers in your ear, like, like, yeah, like, they tried to kill you. Like, I was afraid to go outside. That was making me mad. Like, the fear also was making me mad. So, like, if I just k- kill these people, I don't have to fear them no more. They're not here. So... So for like a week I really just thought out revenge plots and things like that and then but at the same time I always had sense. So it's like my friends are calling, "We going to kill them." I'm like, "No, I'm alive, bro. Don't even don't do nothing because if y'all go shoot at them, they're going to know what it's about and this is going to be an ongoing war. I'm alive safe, but one of y'all might lose y'all life trying to avenge me for getting shot." So I feel like one major thing that we need is, like, trauma support for people that have been shot. Like, somebody to keep following up with them and seeing where they head at because it's either going to go two ways. You're either going to get shot, get a gun, and become a shooter or get shot and just be paranoid and be fearful of your life all the time you walk on the streets unless you get some help because I started carrying a gun after I got shot. I never even carried, I carried a gun a few times before that, but it was to impress the people that I was friends with, like, oh yeah, look, I got a gun, but it, I didn't really feel like I needed one, but after I got shot, I started carrying a gun, but it put me in positions that were more scary than the one I was in myself, because I, I found myself drawing that gun on random innocent people whenever right. I was frightened,
5: Right.
6: so I'm like, Bro, you traumatized. You you right. like you got some right. tra- traumatic.
5: Right. You
6: got some post traumatic stress, brother. Like, and I didn't even know. Like, um, when I came home, cause I got shot like over the Fourth of July weekend, so I ain't get to see none of the fireworks. One of my friends tried to show me the fireworks, that he recorded. When I'm hearing them, it triggered something. I was like, like I ain't like loud noises. I ain't like being surrounded by people. Like I get claustrophobic. Like weird things was happening to me. I didn't know what it was. I didn't have. I had to deal with it all of my own. Like I had counselors at high school, at my high school when I was in school, but I didn't really utilize them because I was really depressed. I wanted to kill myself. I tried killing myself, and after I graduated, I just had to get through all of it by myself. And I, I'm here now. I'm good. You feel me? I'm good, everybody. By the way, <laughs> I'm good. But uh, it's just going through that. Now I see what it is. Now I see from a different lens what's going on with these people. Like, I see why somebody could get shot and think, like, Oh, I'm Rambo now. I'll just survive <laughs> the shooting. Now I got to go on the shooting spree and they're not going to take me alive. Type of it's like a, the feeling where if you don't have an outlet or anybody to come to, we're going to have what we have now killers on the loose.
1: Who, um, so that was you got through it by yourself. There was nobody that really
6: would uh, you throw it honestly no uh family and friends kind of but I, I kept people at a distance mm-hmm. like i let them know like oh i'm kind of sad about you know the situation but i didn't really bring nobody all the way in and i guess that's what kind of kept people from helping because they figured like oh he's cool he's he's good but it was mm. a mask i wasn't really good i was really thinking of some horrific things to do to people mm. and to myself sometimes so yeah it was it was pretty bad
5: let me say something real quick he um articulated something that i think is often missing in this conversation um and as a you know mental health professional there's a lot that we need in terms of counseling and trauma and all that kind of stuff but something he said created this image in my brain that i feel like is always missing in this conversation he said there was a dark figure hovering over me telling me right there's a spiritual warfare that's happening That ain't no therapy can solve. You know what I'm saying? We got to get back to figuring out what are some of the rituals that our ancestors did to protect our communities. They are real life like demons for real, right? And and you listen to them, you you feed them, and And then they grow and then they they, they hover and they stay and then they like get rooted and like they feed off our kids. Like I think they literally feeding off our kids because we not figuring out ways to protect ourselves from that level of of, like violence. and I don't know if the church can do it all the time. Like I don't know what it is, but like I feel like there's some aspect of that where you with that image of like a dark demon whispering. I mean, that's that's yeah, that goodness, it, you know what I mean. That's
6: what it was. It was yeah. like a uh, that's what it was. Overall, it was a spiritual battle within myself. Yeah. Like, was I going to lose my morals mm. and my principles and my way of life due to something that uh, external? You know, like something externally came and messed with me internally. Right. Right. Some outside, like okay. I didn't do nothing to this guy, yeah. but now I'm shot. Boom. Yeah. But now I wasn't—I wasn't mad at like I was mad at them, but it was more so in myself. Mm-hmm. Like
5: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
6: it was all in myself. Like yeah. ah, yeah. why you want what? Why why you was there? Yeah. Um, and then it was like, like I had a good angel and a bad angel. It's yeah. like yeah. go get revenge. They shot you. Right. No, you a punk. Right, right. right. And then there's been times where like a cop full of friends of mine to pull up. Hey, you wanna go do that? Show me like they got like five different guns. Yeah. We can go, we finna go shoot them guys back for so you. Can get in. I'm like, uh, no, no. <laughs> Cause it's like I, I beat it, I beat it. It's 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 a spiritual mm-hmm, thing. It's a it's mm-hmm. a spiritual battle for real. Yeah, yeah. Like for real. Yeah. Like, and I feel like it's the peer pressure, it's the peer pressure, and then it's the the not knowing you a spirit, like most of these mm-hmm. kids don't know their spirits. Mm-hmm. They think that they are like the body. They think that they yeah. they just for persona they made of themselves in these streets. Like, oh, I'm this person. So if if I don't go and go shoot at these people with my friends, yeah. then I'm a punk or something. Mm-hmm. And that's like that's a major thing because it's like it's been times where friends of mine, because I was in the car with five people. Mm-hmm. Well, four plus myself. When I got shot, none of the four like tried to get revenge on me. And we had like outside of friends mm-hmm. that who 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 enemies actually shot at us was like, "Oh, y'all ain't go ride for bro. Like mm-hmm. how y'all this y'all was in a car with him and y'all ain't go shoot at these niggas yet." Like, mm-hmm. ooh, like it's a stigma that it's like
2: people think getting in a fight <laughs> and hurting somebody is hard. Being peaceful and calm and collective and, and using critical thinking and like the doctor Obari said around. You know, using his mouthpiece, using his 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 clever skills to get out of conflict. You know, to de-escalate or to deflect. You know, um, how do we begin to teach and learn these skills, and how do we replace them so they feel just as real and powerful as the aggression and the, you know the anger and everything? Definitely.
7: Um, a couple things. Um, as y'all were speaking about the spiritual piece, um, I just started to think of this that old saying that um, an idle mind is a playground for the devil. Mm-hmm.
1: Jessica Disu, also known as FM Supreme, is an artist and activist. Mm-hmm.
7: And so it's important that we um, not only are engaging, you know, um, victims of violence, but also, you know, perpetrators of violence, um, engaging them with opportunities, access to resources. I think that, you know, with the unemployment rate in Chicago, uh, in Illinois being the highest um, Black unemployment rate in the nation, uh, I think like 12.7%. You know, when I got into uh, Peace Work five years ago, actually, it was Heaven Sutton. She was killed on the West Side, seven years old, straight bullet. And um, I remember working with some of my mentees at a day camp, and we were talking about, um, you know, Heaven's murder and just like the murders of young people in Chicago being killed. And um, they kind of felt numb to it. They felt like, you know... It's, you know, it happens. I'm like, it happens, but do it have to happen? And so asking mm. those questions and I'm like, well, how can we, you know, we, we talk about peace and nonviolence and, you know, peace isn't cool. That's not something, you know, you, you hit me, I'm going to get my lick back or you mm. shoot me, I'm going to shoot back or, you know, these are natural, I guess, thoughts that come up. And so, you know, getting on the journey, I started going to different workshops, visiting, you know, learning about like the, per- the pervasiveness of violence against women being, um, you know, domestic violence being one of the top form of violence in our communities, in our world, period, I think. And um, from taking different workshops to, you know, learning from different practitioners, going to different, you know, countries to, uh, like, Thailand, learning mindfulness and meditation, seeing how, you know, Buddhist monks practice peace building, how can we bring some of that back to Chicago. And we've done, you know, workshops around that. Um, you know, obviously there's still a cultural disconnect, but I think that, um, you know, peace is a process, it's a discipline, and it must be taught, and we have to teach it in the schools. You have to meet young people where they are, and also in the juvenile detention programs, right? And so that's kind of been like my journey and assessing it. I know that we need programs, um, and we all know that here, but and not just programs reaching victims of violence. We have to reach perpetrators, because more often than not, perpetrators of violence have, have been victims.
8: Oh, Sure.
1: With us being here in this country, you know, my parents, I'm first generation American, right? But, you know, I see no difference between people from the diaspora who was born and raised here for generations, and generations. And I thought it was so interesting as we talked about Timmy, her family being from Zambia, but they live in London. And there's a different type of colonization that Mm -hmm. happens there. We still see crime in black communities there. And again, not because it's germane to our makeup that we do these things, but there was a, a robbing of that that cultural identity that happens. So if Timmy could break down what that looks like in in, in the UK uh, as opposed to what you've seen in LA, New York, and Chicago during your travels.
3: Sure. I, I'm actually laughing because I'm glad that you raised it and gave me the opportunity to discuss being disconnected.
1: Again, Timmy Mwale.
3: Because my dad is from Zambia. It's a place I've never been to. I don't speak the language. I don't know nothing about it. I know more about American culture than I know about mm. that because I've not seen my dad for 10 years. My mum is white. My mum is from Cyprus and Scotland. She was born in England. So I'm living... I was born in London. I associate... I identify with being from London, not being English, because being English is something that's reserved um, for white people, in my opinion. And when you speak to a lot of people you know, we have red passports, it's British, anybody can be British, if you're from the colonies, you can be British, to be English, I'm not, I was born in England, but I would never be classed as English, it's only when I come into these international spaces, where I will ever be called English, in my home, I would never be, that's number one, number two, we have a much more um, mixed culture, in the UK, that's very common for you to be biracial, as you would say here, or mixed race, or how, however you want to describe it. Even as a group ourselves, we don't know how to describe ourselves. You know, I grew up being called half-caste. That was acceptable. We called ourselves that because that's what people called us. We thought that that was what we were. Until I was about 12, we would say I would say that I'm half-caste because that's what I was taught to say. There's a big community of, you know, biracial people in the UK and that feeling disconnected, I mean we have a country where we've got 4th 5th 6th generation caribbeans second third generation now africans living all together but we're all just black british like what does it mean to be black british it means that you have a blank canvas for britain to tell you what it means to be black in this country which means even some of our parents especially for the african for the second or third generation african you know young people their parents have no idea what what it is because it's a generation there's an intergenerational barrier and gap there where they can't really connect they don't understand, but you know I think when we look at our Caribbean young people in particular they've been disconnected and uprooted for generations like their great grandparents came from the Caribbean on the first you know ships to get work to the motherland that's how they saw it that's how it was sold to them but that dream like dissipated a long long time ago, and now the poverty has been set in is set in for generations so you know, young black Caribbean boys, you know, three times more likely to be excluded from school, more likely to be in prison than any other group. When we look at the violence, however, and it is, you know, indiscriminate in relation to young black boys, it doesn't matter if you're African or Caribbean, it it doesn't really matter, but I'm talking about when you homogenise the group like that, Mm -hmm. the power of our society to tell you, regardless of what your parents say, or your grandparents say, to dictate, this is what it means to be young and black. That's where it starts to become a culture and they start to perceive themselves in this light through what the media says. You know, Research by Cardiff University showed 7 out of 10 stories about young black boys in our page. 70% is about crime, 70%. So how are they supposed to position themselves or see themselves in a different light? In terms of now connecting with a shared history, the only thing that really unites us in that sense when we live in that space is being oppressed and being black and British and trying to unify around that, but that's a confusing space to be in. Because we have, dis- we're disconnected as a group. There's disagreement within that group. The Caribbeans are steady saying they have no relationship, like they're not African. And <laughs> That's what they will say, that's a, that's a problem because they're denying some of this historical stuff. We can't even sit together and, and say, okay, look, this is how we're being treated. This is how we're being oppressed systematically because we identify as this. There's internal fighting. So it's not clear cut that way. The younger generation they form their own bonds, their own groups, their own cultures. That's why these organisations, you know, we want to... The outside of people or the media want to label them as gangs. Sometimes the young people themselves want to label it as gangs. But however we look at it, they come together as groups because they identify and they share common experience, whether that's being kicked out of school, being harassed by the police from a young age, whatever it is that's then... or Growing up on their state, your equivalent, the, growing up in the hood in the project, living together, Unifies us and unifies them in particular to now fight with each other. But the problem becomes they're disconnected from other young people that share their exact experience. And like you were talking about, for non or other people that will you know discuss this, when the oppressor moves out and just leaves the oppressed amongst the oppressed, they start oppressing one another. And they're so disconnected from you know he didn't want to be kicked out of school. He had dreams. He wants to do things. He's trying to make money as well. You know, the police attack him in the same way they attack me. We're exactly the same. We just live in a different postcode. But now, if he comes to my area, I'm going to ask him where you're from. Like, mm-hmm. what are you doing here? When you're the, we're literally going through exactly the same thing. And so, when you asked earlier as well, some of the ways that we'll try and work with young people, it goes back to something that somebody else said on the panel around having that space to really work through these things and be just drop the bravado drop down the guard and just sometimes be vulnerable but people don't just be vulnerable naturally you have to build a trusting relationship with someone for them to feel like they can do that I've had young people that yeah they're out there however they show themselves in the videos on social media or whatever they want to talk to their you know however they want to present themselves I've seen them cry because it hurts because it's actually painful for them to talk about what you articulated, that someone tried to kill me. I've seen them shake and cry and Mm. try to come to terms with this anger that they feel around almost losing their life in this way and what the pressure of that bravado is to have to avenge themselves, to have to to think about their pride and how they're going to be perceived. But they don't want to fight.
0: Mm -hmm. They actually
3: don't want to fight. And when you give them the space to try and work through these things, you actually give them a space where they can just actually breathe for a minute, because when they leave outside, all of this other pressure is going to come back. So just for a minute, they can just be sit and just be who they actually are. And not just who they actually are, but they can also think of who they might be, who they could become, if given the space away from all of this pressure to actually develop. But Many people don't even give these young people a chance to think what they could achieve or who they could become because of all of what society tells them they are and Mm. all that they can achieve and all that they can be. So sometimes it's really quite simple. The most simple thing is to actually just give them the environment and the space where they feel free to not just be themselves, but to reinvent themselves and create an identity for themselves. I think the individual identity will come before the group identity. If they have none as an individual, they will adopt whatever group identity it is. And if that group identity is governed by what an oppressive society tells them, then that's where all the disconnection and negativity will come from. So for me, culturally, when you have disconnected communities that are not rooted, we try and teach them history, but at an individual level, they need the space to reflect and to learn.
1: Very well said.
6: We have some questions.
1: Yeah, yeah, let's swing it out to the questions. We'll go. He had his hand up for uh, at six o'clock. So then we'll go, <laughs> we'll, go, <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go here and then we'll come to you, guys. Yeah, right here. Yeah.
8: Okay, uh, my name is Dr. Wale Idris. I'm the uh, publisher of this online magazine called Africa USA Today magazine. First of all, I want to commend you, Dr. Obari. We finally met. Mm-hmm. I read your email every day, every okay. time. Thank you. Appreciate you, bro. And I want to focus on uh, scientific approach. Scientific approach, and I will... Try to cut it short, but let me throw something out here first. God forbid, if a gunman walks in that door yeah. with a gun and starts shooting people, how many people will stand up to him and rush him with his gun? And how many people will hide under the table or run out of that door? <laughs> yeah, let's take it. Let's take a vote. <laughs> 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 see, I'm
4: definitely you. running.
8: You know <laughs> I grew up with that in Lagos, Nigeria. I grew up with violence, and I'm talking about real violence that killed my own only older brother. So that's why I resolved to uh, peace mm. because I didn't want my mother to lose two mm. big guys. You know, African woman they cannot take it. They will kneel down and open their chest and say, "Please, don't, don't." I don't want that to happen. So I get away from violence. But my main thing I want to talk about is everybody can talk. I mean, we can sit here all night and talk and talk and talk. But what is the solution? I listen to this gentleman here, you know. I mean, it's not about just talking or, you know, rely on somebody but can we, when we leave this place what is the take home?
6: I feel like one solution to tying what everybody was saying is action. I feel like the, uh, the youth have a lot of energy but they channel it wrong and they are, um, being driven by emotions, the anger and hate that they have at their situation, and it's easier for them to lash that out at the person that looks exactly like them, because it's they're more easy to get to them. Like They, they can't mm-hmm. go get the government, but they can go get op now. So it's like, I feel like, action, I feel like it's the same way they're being forced into negative environments and conditions. We have to force positivity on them. We have to, me personally, I feel it has to be forced and and or manipulated into their minds because now they being forced into violence and manipulated by media music, movies, all these things to subconsciously be violent I feel like you, we gotta counter that with forceful positivity and, and, and positive manipulation through mm-hmm. music movies, conversation um, marches on what you call a joint where they sell drugs or whatever like 200 To almost 300 people come on this little block or whatever, like, squash y'all beef with y'all so-called ops, or we're going to be here all week type of deal. Yeah.
1: I love those solutions. I'm not a panelist, technically, but I I do want to weigh in on this piece. Um, Because there's like a newsy answer where you can say, you know, we can talk to our legislators about, you know fighting mass incarceration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the way that I feel I've been able to impact the far supersedes panel, panels or information I've been able to give out anything is mentorship, one-on-one mentorship. Taking those young people that you engage with, whether it's your little cousin, your nephew, people you bump into on the street while bumping into at panels, it seems like it's minuscule, but if you could change a life of two, three people in your, in your midst, it's a powerful thing.
0: Thank you for checking out a segment from our 10-part series, Culture, Race, and Equity, A Seat at the Table. We invite you to view our show notes at culpodcast.com. And please don't forget to rate us and leave your comments on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To stay in touch and find out how you can support the league, visit our website at thechicagourbanleague.org.
1: This project would not be possible without president and CEO of the Chicago Urban League, Sherry Runner, and former vice president of external affairs, Paula Thornton Greer, external affairs manager, Sabrina Gregg, and current vice president of external affairs, Calmeta Coleman. Also, a big thank you to our associate producer, Courtney Scott, our web designer, Leslie Etherley, our videographer, Lee Golden, and of course, all of you for keeping these conversations going. Until next time, thank you for listening. I'm Domati Pongo.